the Little Detours with Regina Britt, where we help you create a life you love out of the life you have. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Regina Britt. Mark Simone is one of those rare human beings that always seems to be genuinely happy and celebrating life, even when life isn't easy. He seems to love everyone and radiates so much kindness and compassion, you feel changed in his presence. He especially loves children, even teenagers, who aren't always easy to like. The Reverend Mark Simone is an associate minister with the Federated Church, United Church of Christ in Chagrin Falls, Ohio. He's pastor of Children's Youth and Family Faith Formation. He's been in full-time ministry for 41 years. I met Mark four decades ago. We lived a few blocks away from each other in Ravenna, where he started his ministry as a youth pastor in 1979 at First Congregational Church. I was one of the many lost souls who sat at his kitchen table, although I think his wife, Kathy, was the one who touched my soul the most. (laughs) Mark, thanks for joining me. Oh, you're welcome. It's an honor. How was that so long ago, but seems like yesterday? I don't know. You you still look like a high school chick. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're not supposed to lie. You're a minister. (laughs) (laughs) You look great. Well, I remember way back then, you were my sister Mary's age, and you both had dark hair and people thought you were brother and sister which i thought was hysterical. that's true the gym at the Woolworth store thought we were brother and sister and we i went in one time and mary came in and he goes yeah there's your twin which i think is funny because we already had 11 kids in the family we could have yeah, yeah. an extra one for the dozen i'm nowhere as cute as she is <laughs> well mark you really do have this genuine love for others that I don't know, does it come natural to you? Does it, did you have to kind of work on changing you to, to be that way? I have to uh, give any credit to uh, th- those behaviors, that love to my mom, who simply, that's just what she taught. She just taught us love. And it was, yeah, she's just a remarkable woman. She's gone now, but she's a remarkable woman. And I can't remember her ever. I can remember her being angry at people, but I can't ever remember her not loving through whatever. So, yeah, she's... She's the one. And what led you into seminary? Out of all the careers in the world you could pick, what made you say, this is it? I knew at age 15 that I wanted to be a minister. You know, we were still in high school, right? But I knew I wanted to be a minister. It was with the rising drug culture, and all my friends seemed to be messed up. And I never did any drugs. I wasn't interested. I loved rock and roll and all all of those other kinds of things. But I saw so many of my friends just struggling. And I don't know if initially I thought, I'm going to go into being a, a pastor at that age. But what I really wanted to do was work with youth. I thought maybe a counselor. And then I became, did pastor later. Now, at 15, most guys are like, I want to get my driver's license. I want to go out and date. I want to drink a little bit. And you're thinking about being a minister. That's kind of a shift. <laughs> I'm warped. <laughs> <laughs> warped in a good way, right? <laughs> so you went into seminary. And why did you choose the denomination that you chose? Well, I grew up in the United Church of Christ, but I went to Ashland Seminary, which is uh, affiliated with the Brethren Church. They were nearby, and uh, theologically, they were probably a little more conservative than me, but it was just a wonderful place to go. So I was married. I was already working in ministry, and I was trying to get through college. And then I uh, got through college and started seminary right after while I was a full-time minister. So I went the odd path. The odd path. So you go into seminary, and how did you meet Kathy? I mean, I, Kathy was in my graduating class at Ravenna High School, class of 74. You were in 72, right? I was 73. 
73. Okay. I was one year ahead of you. I met Kathy. I can remember the day we were sitting at a, a Sunday school breakfast in the summer at First Congo. Her family was sitting across from us. I think I was in seventh grade and she was in sixth grade. And I just thought, this is a cute girl. I wasn't thinking of anything except she was really cute, very quiet. And so we were in youth group together a little bit. And we started dating late in high school and got married soon thereafter. We, we didn't have babies. We, we bought a house. <laughs> a, a ginormous house. Okay, so you go in a seminary. And then we had some email exchange. And you said you came out of seminary. And you, you became kind of an arrogant pastor. And Kathy, your mentor, kind of changed that and kind of helped you with your sense of mission. Tell us about that. Well, I think when you get your head full of knowledge that other people don't have, sometimes it makes you feel superior. I, you know, I'd already been a minister for 10 years anyway, and now I'm learning all this really cool stuff. And, and so I would try to be seminary professor to the congregation or to the youth, and it just was like, let's go play catch or something. Let's don't play... What do you think of hell? What do you think of it? <laughs> so it took me a while to get over myself because I had achieved this thing that I never thought I would achieve. Yeah, it was just one of those things where you have to face yourself and say, this is not the reflection of who I am. The, the worst story instance was I would do weddings and I would make them so controlled almost. And I had a, a bride who was so uptight at the wedding I did, she couldn't say her vows. She, I made her so nervous. This was, you know, one of my first weddings. But um, I thought after that, that is not me. And I just kind of threw that off and went back to being more who I think I am. Yeah. We, we hear about Bridezilla, but you were like Pastorzilla. <laughs> Pastorzilla. Yeah. So you had shared that Kathy had reminded you of the verse from Micah, which I love, 6, 8. God has told you, mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To do justice to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. That idea of being humble, it, it's hard to come by in this, in this world we live in. Well, I think humility is often misunderstood. I think people see humility as being a lapdog, not to be gender specific, but I see in my counseling a lot of women who have been trained to be subservient to men, and uh, that is not being humble. That's being oppressed. And so I I don't think humility is oppression in any way, but I think it is elevating others, starting with God, but then elevating others above yourself and seeing that you really aren't the most important thing on the planet. And if you want to have a life, you know, the kind of life that your program is sponsoring, the life that you really love, then love people. I love that that it's about elevating others, not putting yourself down, because I think people confuse it with humiliation, like I'm not enough, I'm not good. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think that's very true. It's easier to pull others down to our level than to try to stand a little taller and learn from others. Well, Mark, you have so many stories to tell. It's hard to squeeze them all into a half hour show, but I want to talk about your health because you went through such an incredible journey with your health. And I don't know exactly when it started. I just know some of the bits and pieces. Give us sort of the highlights of that journey. In 2000, I had to have a liver transplant. And I had been ill for the 18 years prior with a disease called primary sclerosing cholangitis, which is a disease of the liver duct, actually. And it ends up killing the liver very slowly. And so I would, it, it's a disease that waxes and wanes. I would sometimes be very jaundiced and sick, and then I would, it would go away, and I'd have 
months and months and months of, of being in good shape. I finally got the transplant, but it was a long journey to get there. And so you got the transplant and you shared a little bit in an email, some of the things you learned. One was reframing the truth. Tell us what that means to you, reframing the truth. It's not original to me, but I, I use it a lot. I don't know where I picked it up, but you can take a painting and you could put a frame on the painting and the painting is the truth. The painting is what it is. You could put a frame on a painting and look at it and say, this, this frame is not the best sponsor. It's not the best frame for my truth. So I, when I, in counseling and in my own life, I try to find ways of figuring out what is the best way to frame the truth of my life. So the example that it came to me and I was trying to deal with my parents' divorce, they divorced when I was eight. And I am 65 years old and they're both gone. And I still don't know why they divorced. I don't know what happened. So as I, as I went on in life, the divorce became way too much of a defining part of my life. So over time, I learned to reframe that. And instead of doing the, the things that kids often think, it's my fault, I did something wrong, all those kinds of things, I started thinking about, you know, whatever my parents' problems or issues were, they never withheld love from me. They never withheld care from me or my brothers. And so it came down to reframing it in a way that I could live with it with peace so that I wouldn't have to be angry or upset or feel guilty. I've worked with uh, women who have been raped to help them with that. The fact is they were raped. It's a horrible, horrible thing. You can't say anything about it to negate that experience, but you can help people find ways of living with it or people who have been racially discriminated against. I find it really a helpful tool in life. Well, I love that you did that with your health issues because originally the, your frame was that you were kept thinking about that this is going to return and even this new liver will get damaged. And then you finally said, wait a minute, this new liver is giving me years of life. Exactly. Why am I, why am I defining the rest of that life in terms of losing this instead of exactly. celebrating it? Exactly. The liver ended up, I had lymphoma from it. I developed Crohn's colitis on pretty bad levels. Um, but nonetheless, 20 years ago, I could have died, you know, so I got this amazing gift from God and from this marvelous woman. I, I know that it was a woman and that uh, she died in a car wreck and had a couple of kids, but uh, she lived on the, the West Side, I believe. I had some letters with her husband. And, but the thing that impressed me about this woman was she had made a decision to be a donor before that was, uh, that was kind of the thing to do. And so when she died, I was able to get that living. But she made that decision about her body. And that, that even rolls into part of the, the whole lesson about the liver, that this marvelous woman was already thinking of others. It just, it's just, she's just amazing. She's my, one of my heroes. That's beautiful to have that, that piece of her inside of you, that kind of love for others. Yeah, she shows that. Let me talk about the idea of the parts part party, that there are different parts of you that you have to communicate with. Tell us about that. Well, I think that, um, I don't know if it's Western thinking. I think it wouldn't be called Asian thinking, but I think it is a style of thinking called Oriental thinking that is far more in touch, far more whole world rather than just part of us. So a parts party is, is letting my angry self talk to my frustrated self so maybe my frustrated self can help my angry self figure out why I'm so ticked off or letting my joyful self spill over on my unhappy self and try to figure out 
why am I unhappy when I'm filled with joy and yet I'm unhappy about this situation? So I think parts parties are trying, when I do that in my own life, it's trying to figure out, you know, why do I want to do something that I shouldn't do? Or why don't I want to do something that I should do? And what's holding me back? What other thinking do I have going on? Is, you know, is it the anger? Is it frustration? Is it discouragement or even depression? Letting those things communicate so that I can be at my best self. It's funny when people say, pull yourself together, you sort of do that emotionally. You pull those parts together. Yeah. Yeah. Let them talk. Let them talk. And then you have this tip that I've heard other people, they call it the 30 minute meltdown where you just spend time and just like, let it rip. When I had cancer in 1998, I'm sorry, 1988, was it 1998? Goodness, it's blur now. But there were times where I I needed to box it into a little space where I could feel really scared and then be done with it or really frustrated and be done with it. And sort of you put like a time limit on that. And how has that helped you to kind of create that little, almost like set the timer for half an hour and then get your feelings out? may not go a half hour. You allow yourself the time span so that you don't get rushed. But just, um, I learned a guy who was in a 12-step program. And since you've heard of it, I mean, maybe it's out there through uh, AA or one of those programs. I don't know. But um, I just think it's brilliant that you don't ignore how you feel. You don't ignore your fears or your frustration, your anxiety, and you sit down and you let it just scream. You, you maybe go out in the woods and scream. You let it rip in a way so that you're being emotionally honest with, uh, with how you feel. But you can't let that dominate your life or your day. You'll step on other people. You'll miss opportunities. You'll pass up chances to be loving or caring or just in presence with people. And so I think it's important to take time and figure out what's bugging you. And then when you figure it out, you let it go. And sometimes you can't figure it out. That's the real world. Sometimes it may take more, but it gives you a a heads up that something's going on. And so you let it go. You vent. I have a friend in recovery who calls it kicking the high chair. Every so often she's like, I'm just going to get in the high chair. I'm going to kick. I'm going to get mad. I'm going to yell at God. And then I'll get out of the high chair and go back and live my life and be happy. I love that one. The kicking the high chair I like because it's like, we understand when toddlers do that, babies do that. And, and, and we are children of God and the emphasis on the children part sometimes, you know, yeah. like children. Yeah. <laughs> well, Mark, we're at the halfway mark already. So I just want to pause and thank everyone listening for choosing uh, to listen to my podcast, Little Detours, and to listen to uh, Reverend Mark Simone. He's just a beautiful soul. I know you have a lot of podcast choices. Thanks for listening to mine. Well, Mark, we got to move into your, like you expanded your mission from Ravenna, Ohio, to Chagrin Falls, to globally. And tell us about how you ended up in South Africa being changed by the people there. Uh, In the 90s, I wrote four books in youth ministry, and a couple of them did fairly well. So I started getting invitations. I got invited to go to Eastern Europe for a speaking gig in um, 94, I guess it was. But in 1998, um, a friend who had participated in one of his books said, I'm going to South Africa. We're going for three weeks. Apartheid's over by two years. And uh, we're going to go into non-white places and um, try to share youth ministry to these folks who haven't had any concept of it. And it, it just changed my life. I've been to South Africa now 17 times. I I recently wrote a book on it, on the experiences. I talked to people from South Africa weekly, but it, it just was a, a huge, not only life changer, but life definer. I can't explain why I am so in love with South Africa, but it really has my heart. It's interesting how a country can do that. 
And for me, it's Poland. Out of all the countries in the world, I felt like God said, okay, I'm sending you to Poland. And I've been there four times and I just love the people and they love me. And there's some, it's like, that's my ministry. And I don't even speak the language. And for you, it's South Africa. Isn't people proceed beer, please, in Polish? <laughs> you know, I don't know. I know Jen Dobry, hello. I know uh, Jen Kuyabart, so I, I don't Dobro know. Dobro Voda. Dobro Voda. There you go. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, you're a white guy from Ohio. You come to South Africa. You come back to America and you have a different sense of what it means to be white, to have white privilege, which is something I think we're all finally waking up to in this. Yes. So what does it mean to you, Mark? White privilege? Yeah. Well, I, I grew up poor. I grew up not having a lot of privilege. But as I got older, I realized that that's an illusion. (laughs) It's just not true. The color of my skin gives me opportunities that people of color do not get. And I saw it in South Africa. I, I, every place I went when I was speaking, we went, we went, first time I went, we went for three weeks. And I don't know how many thousands of kilometers we went. But every group that we went to, I was held in suspicion, not only because I'm white, but because I'm American. And so uh, what I found the best thing was, is I would always start a program asking people what they're learning and what they can share with me, what they can teach, how they can help me understand not their culture, but my own youth ministry. And that's what evolved into people starting to share their stories of apartheid, not just blacks, but also coloreds. They they designate black, white, and colored. But uh, black people and colored people and white people shared their stories about apartheid. And that's what caught my heart. I mean, I love the country, but the people were so honest Nobody ever pulled the proverbial race card. They just called it like it was and how they experienced it. And it was just very different experience for me. So you turned this into a book, When Morning Turned Into Dancing, and that's like covered 20 years of listening. You didn't go there to just preach. You went there to learn and listen, which I think is yes. a different model. I think churches go to kind of save the poor people and save yeah. the marginalized instead of learning from them. I always told the pastors that I was working with that it's my job is not to encroach upon their ministries, whatever it would be. That my my job was just to provide them with what they what they were requesting, some youth ministry training. I made a promise to pastors and other leaders that I would never usurp their their position and and their importance to their people, and it worked out really well. You know, the pastors they don't know me from anybody, and I'm showing up at their doorstep, and I'm going to be speaking at you know, four or five meetings. And what do they know? They're taking a risk on me, but I I don't think I ever offended anybody. And one of the things you shared, you learned many things from the people of South Africa, but one was to seek goodness over happiness. What does that mean to seek goodness? You know, one of the fruit of the spirit is, is goodness. That whole idea that we just, we invest our lives in doing good. Americans, we have happiness in our, is it the Constitution we, or the Bill of Rights, whatever it is, but we talk about pursuing happiness. And happiness, in a lot of ways, I think, is a problematic goal because you can't be happy all the time. So if you seek goodness over happiness and being good to people, it will feed your happiness rather than just trying to be happy in every moment. And it's just, it just doesn't work. It's not, it's not life fulfilling. It's not, it's not reality based. So goodness goes much deeper and lasts much longer than happiness. Yeah. yeah. I think the thing that lasts the longest in us as humans is joy. 
I think the joy really is the heart of the human soul, if it has any opportunity to express and develop. I think that goodness is, is right there with it. I also like that you talk about when you seek to do good, you do it for the sake of others. Because I think sometimes in um, churches, it's about we got to do good to show God how good we are. Like we're yeah. still doing it for us. Yeah. There's still some kind of gain. Like I'm going to gain heaven if I behave well or if I'm if I'm kind to people instead of just being kind because that's the right thing to do to that for that yeah. person in front of you. A hook. There's a hook in it for us. Yeah, that's part of that microverse is uh, being kind. You know, loving mercy. In one translation, this is what my wife told me and showed me is being kind. And there's just nothing better than goodness and kindness and those kinds of things. It validates people in ways that, um, you know, I always try to chat up the person that's taking my money at whatever counter or the restaurant or whatever, just letting people know that that they're seeing. I was in a car in South Africa, and a, a young boy ran up next to the car, and he tapped on the window, and he said, can you see me? Do you see me? And, um, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm seeing you. You just scared me. You just knocked on the window while we're driving slowly. And I, I asked uh, somebody later what was he was saying, and, and it's a validation question. And so that gave me the thought that, you know, you need to let people know that you see them, validate them. That little boy was just a cute little boy running around. I don't know anything about him in, in terms of meaning other than, he's a, other than he's a fellow human. He really doesn't have a lot of meaning to me, but he wanted validation. And in saying hi to me, he's giving me validation. He's saying, you're not blind. <laughs> You know, it's funny, even those words, I see you, because so often we use it as an apology. Oh, I didn't see you. And that, yeah. and, and as if that's okay. Like, oh, I just didn't see you. Like an afterthought. Yeah. Instead of to be able to, to really pause and yeah. say, I see you. And that means I see your pain. I see your life. I see your beauty. I, I mean, there it's a real, you can go deep with that. Yeah. Yes. I agree. I, I think letting people, validation again, letting people know that. You know, I can't let everybody know they're important, but I can let them know that they're real and that I, that I know that they're alive, they're participating in this earth with me, and we're doing a lot of the same dances, whether we're in the same dance hall. So. <laughs> Mark, you also talk about being with people who happen to be poor, but not to call them poor people. I think sometimes in America, we look at Anybody that's beyond our southern border, they're the poor people we don't want in our country taking something from us. There's that kind of harsh mentality. And I love it that you see people, they happen to be poor. They happen to have different circumstances. It doesn't define their being. You know, that was a lesson I picked up doing work camps in Native American reservation in South Dakota. Horrible poverty. Wish we had more time. I have one awesome story about it, but horrible poverty. And yet... Nobody acted like they were poor. They were just people who happened to be poor. And, and that, that helped me. I, I talked with one of the chiefs and it helped me understand that, that they understand their poverty. They know they're living in poverty. They're people, though. So instead of being poor people, I'm working with, not for, people who happen to be poor. And it's just a whole different mindset. It takes the importance off of anything that I'm doing there, making it important, and it allows me to participate with somebody else, roofing a house of an elderly woman. You know, it just, it, it becomes not, I'm the cool white guy from Ohio with all these kids who came and we're going to roof your house. It, it becomes, this is my new friend and they're helping me out on my house. And this little old 
Native American woman's picking up shingles and taking them over to the bin to throw them away. She's, you know, she's working with us. It's a, it's a participation. So, yeah. I remember years ago, I went to El Salvador right before the war ended, you know, like a week before the war ended. And uh, I was there with a ministry group, a Catholic ministry. And this little girl, really poor village uh, in um, outside of La Libertad and Chiragua. And this little girl came up to me, had no shoes, covered with dirt. And she handed me this shoelace as a gift. It, and I still have it. It's blue with a silver thread running through it. And it might have been the, the most valuable thing that little girl owned. And she wanted me to have it. And at first, I couldn't take it. My friend with me who was doing ministry there said, you need to take this to let her feel that she has the power of giving. And I never thought of that. You know, we want to have the power of being the one that gives, but to receive that there's a humility, there's a sense of humbleness and letting somebody else be the giver. Yeah. That's actually a, a good thing for me to think about. You're talking about that, that receiving becomes part of the gift. Yeah. I it's had really no cool. And that's <laughs> well, so what you've done in, in South Africa, that you aren't going there just to give, to elevate you but also to receive to, so they can feel elevated. Yeah. They have well, I have, I have wonderful relationships with people there and, and I have gained much to be, to say, um, you know, people, people share their intimate stories of apartheid, horrible things that happened to them. And what, a, I mean, what a gift. I've had people tell me stories that they gave me permission to put in the book. They said, I've never told anybody this. Nobody knows this. And not just blacks or coloreds, also whites, white people that did, uh, reprehensible things that they feel horrible about, and they just had to talk about it with somebody. So, so you know, we just have a minute or two left, and I wonder, Mark, that idea of of when people have had trauma and tragedy, and they need to to get that out and have it be seen. What's the best way for somebody to be present and listen, and to to be that place for them to put that story? I think you have to find what matches your personality. I think some people do very well with three or four sessions of counseling. Some people need therapy. Some people need to trust better friends and find the friends that you trust that that won't spread around what you're doing. And you just got to find that place. I think parents are a wonderful place in many, in many instances to get that reality check and to talk to or sibs. But I think that when you keep stuff in and you don't face it, you don't deal with it. it. That's the higher tragedy. Hearing stories and sharing stories is so important. So, Mark, you you give a lot of yourself away. Who is your kind of who's on your like dream team of people that help you fill back up? Oh, I have some advisors that have worked with me. My wife, Kathy, is obviously the top of it. But in terms of my church work, there are some advisors who have volunteered with me for over 25 years for work camps and youth group. I've never seen that kind of commitment. And they're there for me. Um, I, I told them I made their salvation contingent on youth group. <laughs> so if they, if they want to go be with Jesus, they need to volunteer on work camp. But um, people, I, I don't have specifics on, uh, you know, in terms of names that anybody would recognize. I, I've been very influenced by uh, reading so much about Nelson Mandela and a lot of his works. He, he would be on a dream team, but um course he's gone and I have to use the words that others recorded that he said but and Jesus is my biggest Jesus is uh, I'm just a big Jesus guy I fell in love with Christ when I was a kid and and having that relationship with uh, who I believe is a living God is is just an everyday adventure 
What would Jesus do is the name of an old book. And that's, I ask myself that a lot. Well, and Mark, I love that for you, it's a Jesus who's loving and kind. And we've kind of created a Christianity in this country that sometimes Mm -hmm. seems harsh and doesn't seem very Christian at all to me, Mm -hmm. but I love that you really walk the talk, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you. So Mark, we are near the end here. So tell us the best way to connect with you on social media. And uh, you have a website where we can find your books. It's on Amazon and they also have it at Fireside and Chagrin. But the uh, the website is www.morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, intodancing.com. And uh, Facebook, it's also When Morning Turned Into Dancing. They can connect with me there. I got I have Twitter and I have Instagram, but I can't figure them out, Regina. <laughs> you know, if somebody wanted to email me personally, they could do it at msim76 at yahoo.com. And I'd be happy to talk to folks if they had something they wanted to talk about. Well, thank you, Mark. And you can find those links on my website, uh, reginabrett.com. Well, Reverend Mark Simone, I still know you as Mark, you know, you 40 some years and knowing you. My biggest takeaway is that idea of to elevate others, to not put yourself down, but it's a we and that we elevate others and then we elevate the world that way. So thank you for sharing that. I want to close with your answer to this question. What's the best thing you do for yourself every day to create a life you love out of the life you have? Well, I'm not good at that because I have so many things that I love to do to create that life that I don't have, you know, I was reading some of your notes. I don't have that one thing, but I I guess I would say I try, I really do try to be present. I try to be present with others. I try to be present with myself. I try, I really do try not to think of myself as being, you know, Joe cool. I want to be one of everybody else. So I think my leadership style is leading within, not in front, not behind sharing whatever blessings I have with others so that we can all be blessed. So those are the kind of touchstones that I think uh, help me through my day. Well, thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciate all your wisdom and your compassion. Thanks for sharing it today. Love you, buddy. You too. Thanks for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett. If you want to know more about today's guest and topic, head to my podcast page at reginabrett.com. There you can also subscribe to my email newsletter, so you never miss an opportunity to be inspired. For more episodes, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review my show so we can reach and inspire even more people. Thanks for joining us today. Now go make something possible. 